Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, I'll be taking you on an underground adventure as I tell you the story of Ted the Caver, one of the internet's oldest creepypastas. There will be descriptions of claustrophobic events associated with caving, and there are going to be some spoopy moments among our usual foul language. So let's get ready for another Human Exception. going to be a thing. Um, I ended up going down quite the rabbit hole with this, and I'm unbelievably excited to talk about this. So, yeah, um, time for another one of my favorite weird internet stories, which is I'm going to be talking about the story of Ted the Caver. In March 2001, a blog appeared on an Angel Fire website, which if you don't remember, <laughs> or are too young to know what that is, Angel Fire, GeoCities, and Tripod were kind of a website where you could build your own web page. Closest thing, I guess, now would be like Squarespace or Wix, except that you had to do all your HTML and everything for your website before. So the blog opens with a very brief description, introduction by the author, author Ted, who is a caver. He explains that he and a friend have an exploring virgin cave, and he decided to put together a website to keep his friends and family up to date on their continued exploration. Now, I'm going to tell you this story. I, I, I almost wanted to read the entire thing to you guys, but it's long. <laughs> so I'll be summarizing some parts of it. And But the whole thing still can be found at angelfire.com forward slash trek, T-R-E-K forward slash caver. Um, and there'll be a link in the show notes, like expected. And if you enjoy it, I do highly recommend reading the entire thing. It is definitely a fun time. So um, I'm also going to warn you that there's going to be some of this that will be included, which will include descriptions of very claustrophobic scenarios. So this is what the cover of the website looks like. It's just a picture of a cave and it says, welcome to the page of Ted. Shows mm -hmm. the last updated date and shows a picture of a cave which says click here. So March 23rd, 2001. Due to the overwhelming number of requests I've received to tell about my discoveries and bizarre experiences in a cave not far from my home, I have created this webpage. I will outline the events that happened to me during the past few months, beginning with my journey into a familiar cave in December 2000 and ending, well, it hasn't actually ended yet. I'll use my caving journal as the text to tell you about the recent experiences. I will give them to you as I experience them in chronological order. He then goes on to list a couple of things and clauses that about the story, one of them being, I will not reveal the location of this cave to anyone for any reason. So please don't ask. I refuse to be held accountable for anyone's life but my own. I will refer to the cave as Mystery Cave. That is not its real name. And he finishes it saying, If you think these events sound far-fetched, I agree. I will come to the same conclusion had I not experienced them myself. Ted goes on to explain that the bulk of the text featured comes from his caving journal, which he's then transcribed and has added some additional commentary and context after the fact. So December 30th, 2000, B and I decided to get in one more caving trip before the new year. So we set our sights on Mystery Cave, not a spectacular cave, but since neither of us have been caving in a while, it really didn't matter. It'd be nice to go to any cave. There was a bit of excitement to this trip, though. There was a small passage in the lower portion of the cave that I wanted to check out to see if there was a way we could possibly get past it. It had a small opening, but lots of air blowing out of it, even though it was way too small to climb through. I had never even checked to see what was on the other side of the passage. And Ted says that it's a common saying among cavers, if it blows, it goes. Meaning that if you find wind coming from a crack or a hole in a cave, that means that there's probably something worth checking out on the other side. Which is why investigating the hole had them interested. Quote, we got our gear loaded up and hit the road by 3pm. We got to the cave in great time, since B likes to drive fast. We anchored from the usual tree and began to rappel into the cave. I went down first and got my gear together while B came down afterwards. Ted explains that he has caved with B many times. And B was injured in a, in a caving accident a couple years prior, where they thought he would never walk again. But with sheer determination, B could not just walk, but he could still cave. He wasn't as fast or as nimble as he once was, but he could get around just fine. The hole that they were after is located deep within the cave, and is positioned about three feet off the cave floor. I got a picture. And these pictures all came from the same blog. Alright, so, so this shows where the hole is. 
Um, he's got a glove stuffed in it, so for scale, and it's about the hail. The hole's about the size of a fist. This is the hole they want to try and get through. <laughs> I refuse to make the obvious joke. But... Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but wait, hold on. So they saw this and they're like, "Hey, let's." Okay. Anyways, are they gonna try? Do they try and break it open? Is that like the the idea? Well, let's take a listen. So, um, with his flashlight, Ted is able to look inside the hole and see that the wall around the hole is about three to five inches thick. Past that, the tight passage then went back about 10 to 12 feet before it seemed to really open up. And this excited B and Ted is this could actually be a virgin passage, a place no other human has ever been, something that all cavers live for. Ted says, I named the passage Floyd's Tomb after Floyd Collins. It seemed to look like the tight spot where Floyd spent his last miserable days on Earth. Floyd Collins was a caver back in the 1900s. He got stuck in a tight crawl space and was unable to free himself. It's an amazing story that's detailed in a book called Trapped, the story of, of Floyd Collins by Roger Brucker. Calling our passage Floyd's tomb was not only a tribute to Floyd, but a commentary on the size of the passage. And um, Ted was great enough to give us a diagram of kind of what this would look like. This is a beautiful piece of art from, from paint. I love it. <laughs> amazing. I am disturbed already. <laughs> uh, so Ted and B took a seat and determined their plan of attack. They knew it would be a lot of work, but they had no doubt that they could do it. Quote, while we sat there in the darkness, we could hear the wind howling from the other side of the passage. It was a low, eerie noise. We could also hear a low rumble from time to time. No big deal, though. The cave is in the vicinity of a highway that has heavy trucks drive on it. We figured the rumble was the effect of the trucks resonating through the rocks. They decided that hauling in a cordless drill, some bullpens, and a sledgehammer would probably be the easiest way to break through. With a plan in mind, the men left the cave, excited for their eventual return. Nearly a month would pass before they'd be able to return on January 27, 2001. Getting all the tools down to the cave was tricky, but once they did, they went right to work, taking shifts. And they had managed to borrow a DeWalt cordless drill from a friend and had bought some masonry bits for the drilling into the cave wall. The routine went like this. To begin work, we had to get down on our knees and do our best to avoid smacking our heads on the ceiling. Working in an awkward position, we would drill into the wall around the hole. That was difficult work. We really had to push on the drill, and it was still slow progress. Then we inserted the bullpen into the hole and hammered at it until the rock broke up. Then we would repeat this process. To give you an idea of how slow it went, the typical size rock that would break off was about the size of a fingernail. If we broke off a larger piece, about a third of the size of my palm, it was cause for a celebration. Even though we spent many hours and several trips working on the hole, we never did find a better technique for widening the hole. The drill bullpen hammer got the best results for all our efforts. We came up with some crazy ideas for breaking up the rock, everything from TNT, which we never seriously considered, or hauling a generator to the mouth of the cave and running an extension cord down for a jackhammer. We even thought about using liquid nitrogen to freeze the rock and make it more brittle. Quote, end quote. They quickly found that limiting factor was going to be their battery power. Each battery lasted about three hours, and they only had two. So when the last battery died, they took a seat for a rest before they had to climb back out of the cave. Quote, We could tell that we had done some work in the cave, but it was not much. For the first time we got into the cave, we both sat down and took a break. It was nice to check out the results of our hard work. Then we noticed the howling again. It seemed to be a little louder than the last time we were there. We just figured the wind was blowing a little stronger outside. What we could not figure out was the rumbling. It, too, seemed to be louder and more frequent. This time, we could not attribute the noise to trucks. The road that the trucks drove on was not very busy to begin with, and at this time of night, it should be dead. Yet, the rumbling continued. It seemed to be coming from deep within the passage. B said that he'd ask some veteran cavers that what could be causing the sound. End quote. They left some of their tools behind. They found a room in a nearby motel so they could get back to work the next day, which was much the same. And I have a picture of the progress. Oh. At this point, Ted has a new entry where he goes into a little more detail about the cave and the experience of caving for context. Ted goes into a fair amount of detail here, and I'm going to try and cut it down, but still leave you enough of, to get a better idea of the cave itself and Ted's level of knowledge. Quote, the cave was discovered several decades ago with construction in the area unearthed its entrance. From the time to the present, it has been most, visited mostly by locals in the area and the avid cavers in the region. Beer cans can be found intermittently in the cave, mostly in the upper half. When the cave was first entered, it was probably beautiful. Dust, graffiti, vandals, pigeons, and regular use has diminished its appeal. There are still places in the cave where small, where small formations remain undisturbed, as a reminder of what the rest of the cave once looked like. To enter the cave, one must have a good length of rope in order to rappel down into the rock. 
A nearby tree serves as a good anchor point. Once the rope is tied to the tree, it's about 20 feet away to a small cliff. It can then be tossed over the edge of the cliff to a small ledge 15 feet below. Cavers can then descend the short distance to the entrance. Once inside the cave, artificial light must be used. Safe caving calls for at least two sources of backup lighting. For my backup lighting, I had a mini mag light mounted in my helmet and another helmet light mounted in my backpack, which I always carry with me. I also have glow sticks that I carry with me. They're not considered good backup sources of light, but they're good for using for lunch breaks and such. They could be used to get out of a cave if all other sources fail. The temperature is stable year-round. It feels cool in the summer and warm in the winter. We've gone in on freezing days, and 10 feet into the cave, it is warm enough to take off our coats. It's a good temperature to work in, as we learned. End quote. He explains that there's another short climb over some large rocks before another pit is encountered, and the cave has to drop another feet to continue. There's a 10-foot-long passage where you have to crawl, and then the cave splits off into multiple directions before you can finally get to the tomb. He then goes on to explain that the rest of the passage that leaves the Floyd's tomb, in short, it's really not an easy trek, and that's before they try to get into the hole that they're trying to make big enough to crawl into. Ted says that this is what led him to the hole in the first place, because after all that, you're usually you usually worked up quite a sweat, and sitting down by the hole was a relief as the breeze would then cool you down. Quote, as has been my tradition for all the years I've been caving, the party reaches a point in the cave, usually at the deepest part, that all lights are extinguished. Complete blackness fills the eyes. For a moment, the individual caver strains the eye muscles, focusing in and out with, expect- ex- with the expectation of catching a crumb of light somewhere in the false night. After several futile moments, the caver turns his head at a sound, perhaps another caver, only to have their sen- other senses return and then heighten. The sounds, smells, and feelings that have been overlooked at this point come racing to the caver in perfect detail. The pain of their own behind sitting on the cave floor, the smell of the dust, sweat, guano, the sound of a modern material shifting on age-old rock as cavers attempt to find a comfort in the solid in the solid foundation. At the back of every caver's mind at this time is, what if? What if a person had to climb out of the cave with no light? Would he make it? Would he find all, all, find all the turns and bends which got him to this place? If not, would a rescue party find him in time? Oh, oh I hate mm. that. Cavers have balls, man. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Oh. No, please. <laughs> Ted then gets back to work with uh, work he and B were doing in the cave, explaining that the arduous labor and the tiny victories. Frequently, Ted thought he might be able to fit in the hole and would try and find it, find it too tight, which only just spurred them on to the point where they both became obsessed. During work breaks, Ted and B would fantasize about what lay on the other side. The idea of an untouched passage was an exhilarating idea all on its own. But Ted could admit he wouldn't be disappointed if instead they found some sort of lost treasure. Ted updated his blog again a couple weeks later on February 10th. He and B had gone back to do some more work in the cave. This time they took Whip, uh, B's Jack Russell Terrier. Whip was an experienced caver, having gone on many expeditions with her master. B even had a little harness made for her for repelling her down. And I have a picture of Doug. No. Up. <laughs> Quote. B also told me that he talked to some caber friends of, of his that ha- came up with the explanation for the rumbling noise. They thought it might be the sound of water deep within the cave, possibly a waterfall. They, they couldn't really explain why the noise seemed to come and go. To me, it just sounded as one more reason to get through so we could solve the mystery, end quote. As they moved to the cave, Whip did as all dogs do and excitedly began to wander about sniffing, but never out of sight as she was trained to do. But when the group reached a segment where the cave splits off into several paths, she seemed to lose her enthusiasm and began to hug closer to either B or Ted and seemed to be on edge. Quote, as we, as we approached the short drop off before the hole, she stopped and would not come any further unless we coaxed her. The hair on her back stood on end. Finally, as we got within 20 feet of the hole, she began to whimper and hide behind B. Her tail was between her legs and she was cowering down on the ground. Strange. I've seen her square off with dogs twice her size, but now she acted as if Satan himself were lurking in the darkness. I figured there must have been other animals that she could smell, and and that was probably what was causing her to be so uneased. We decided that with this new development, the nervous dog, one of us would work while the other stayed with the dog a few feet away from where we normally rested. We got right back into our routine, drilling, hammering, etc. With our extra supply of batteries, we were able to push hard on the drill and not have to worry so much about using the batteries up. My journal goes on for a while about the progress we were making. The entire time we worked, Whip did not move. She just laid there on the rope bag, shivering. She would whimper from time to time. One thing I didn't think about at the time was that she would not take her eyes off the hole. Mm. They were on their fourth battery, B at the hole, while Ted was kicking back with a dog, nearly falling asleep when B stopped working, drawing Ted's attention. 
B had a puzzled look on his face, then glanced back at Ted and shook his head. And Ted asked him what was up. Quote, he said that he swore that he just heard a strange noise emanating from the hole. He said it sounded like a rock sliding on a rock, sort of a grinding noise. I assumed his ears were just ringing from the drill. He hadn't been wearing earplugs this trip. He assured me he knew what he heard. I, I didn't have an explanation, so I just went back to dozing. B sat in quiet in the cave for a long time before he resumed work. Also, he would stop from time to time just to listen. B is very grounded, not one person to not not one to pursue some sort of imaginary sound. I believe he heard something, but I'm not too concerned about what it was. I assume we will figure it out once we get through the passage. End quote. The battery lasted another hour or so when it finally died, and the two stood over the hole examining their progress. Ted was getting up real close to the hole to see if his head would fit, but that's when he noticed something. Quote, the wind had stopped, and all the times I've been in the cave, I've always felt the wind blowing. The last time we were we were out here working, the wind was blowing even worse than ever. Even earlier, he remembered the breeze cooling them, cooling us off, but now nothing. B said he did not know what it, when it stopped. The rumbling had ceased, too. End quote. Mm. They puzzled over this for a bit, but couldn't come up with any answers, and packed up and left. Whip never happier to be above ground. March 3rd, 2001. Quote, it took us three weeks before we'd get back to the mystery cave again. Our attitudes had changed a bit since we first started the project. In the beginning, we looked at the thing as a fun adventure. Since the last trip out, we found ourselves talking more, taking a more serious approach. On the drive out this time, our conversations was, were a little more subdued than before. We hadn't talked much since the last trip, not for any reason, but scheduling conflicts. Instead of discussing ways of getting through the passage, we found ourselves talking about rational explanations for what had happened. Neither of us had any ideas on what would explain the unusual occurrences we experienced on the last trip. We were amused to find out that neither of us had talked much about the last trip to other people. That is a complete reversal from other trips. It had been fun to report to friends and family about our progress, and it was always fun to tell people about the tight squeeze we were going to have to go through to get into this passage. Most people have little desire to voluntarily subject themselves to an incredibly tight space. Actually, neither do I, but I will do it in order to get to the other side. It's good motivation. End quote. Naturally, B didn't bring Whip with him this time, and they noticed that the breeze was back, so they went back right back to work and made some good progress. Okay, the hole was big enough, at least for me, to put a hammer into the hole for reference. Then put the camera into the hole and take a picture of Floyd's tomb. It's, it's difficult to get an exact feel about the lowest point near the back of the picture. It's about seven inches high. The width is about 20 to 24 inches. The, the hammer is a small five-pound sledge. Note the abundance of rock on the passage floor. I've got a picture here. I hate this. I just want to say that, that I hate this. So, like, okay, so wait, how long have they been down there? Um, so they've been or working on this project since the end of January, it. and Jesus. this is the start of March right now. What the fuck? At that point, well, listen, I wouldn't have done this to begin with, but <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't have even shown up with, a, you know, I wouldn't have done the whole, like, taking my ball and go home. I wouldn't have shown up because <laughs> I am claustrophobic. But this just makes me go, nah. <laughs> but you gotta remember, like, this is the possibility of going someplace that never, I no other humans ever been before. Know. And that's kind of something they live for, right? So it's dope. And at the same time, what if that's the place where you find like a fucking thresher mall or something? Like what? What if, what if that's where every horror movie collides? Oh yeah, no, I would never do it. Nathan probably would, but I never. Oh. Would. Yeah. There's a reason the hole is so small, and it's so the devil can't get out. <laughs> oh, we want to get in and meet him, so I'm just gonna make that hole bigger. I love that. All right. <laughs> So sometime later, um, quote, I was kneeling down and working the drill slowly into the wall at the time. I had my earplugs in, my safety glasses on, and was lost in my own thoughts. Suddenly, over the squeal of the drill, wearing down the rock, I heard a strange noise. It was loud. I could hear it even the over the noise of the drill, even though I was wearing my earplugs. First, I thought it was just the drill bit doing its job in the cave. It would frequently complain by screeching and whining as we forced it into the wall, but this was different, and it took me several full seconds to comprehend that this was coming from inside the hole and not the bit. I stopped drilling and yanked my earplugs out just in time to hear the most terrible scream I'd ever heard trail off and echo into the darkness of the cavern. I stared wide-eyed at the hole for several moments, and I didn't move, nor did I breathe. I turned to look at B. Moments earlier, he'd been lying on the rope bag catching a nap. Now he was standing upright, mouth open, with a look of concern on his face. I turned and looked at the hole again, half expecting to see a, a demon face staring back at me. But nothing was different in Floyd's tomb. 
I fixed my gaze in the back of the squeeze where the limits of my light would reach. There was no motion, only darkness beyond the reaches of my light. In the complete silence that followed, I could hear my heart pounding in my ears. Not another sound could be heard in the cave. B said to get some rocks and put them in the hole. He explained that whatever animal had made that noise might be trying to come back to the hole. So I immediately grabbed a few rocks and hoisted them into the opening, using the handle of the sledgehammer to slide the rocks as far as I could to the back of the tunnel, creating a wall between us and the other side. Since the squeeze is so small, it didn't take long. The entire time I was doing this, however, I was thinking that the noise certainly did not come from an animal. I didn't know if B really thought it was, or if he was just trying to convince himself. I didn't say anything to him about what I thought. After I filled the back of the passage with rocks, we just sat there listening to silence. My breath was a lot more rapid than usual. Neither of us spoke for quite some time. Finally, B suggested that we get back to work, but keep an eye on, out for movement in the hole. We put a light in the passage that shined on the back of Floyd's tomb. It was only at this point that we realized that the wind had stopped again and the rumbling could no longer be heard. To say I was nervous would be an understatement. I didn't say anything to B, nor him to me. We just went back to drilling. From the time it happened to the time that I'm writing this journal, two days later, I have tried to come up with some possible source for such a noise. To describe it, I would say it sounded like a cross between a man screaming in fear and a cougar screaming in pain. It sounded like it had come from the hole and was roughly 100 feet away. The horrific noise reverberated through the cave and through my ears. B estimated that it lasted about 8 to 10 seconds. End quote. Oh. When the last battery died, Ted was happy to get out of the cave. And they went for dinner and decided to go to a motel and continue their work tomorrow. They discussed the noise, trying to think of all possible causes. While Ted was a little shaken, B seemed unperturbed, and his determination gave Ted the courage to finish what they started. Oh. Eight to ten seconds is a long time to listen to something like yeah. scream. Yeah, um, Ted says that he thinks it was three to five seconds. Oh. So there was a discrepancy between the two of them, which one, how long they thought it lasted. Dell. 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 And you're underground? No, no. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So February 13th. Quote, it's amazing what a good couple meals and a little bit of sleep can do for someone's attitude. Even though we still had memories of the strange noise fresh in our minds, we were lit our fire of enthusiasm. The other side of the passage seemed so close. We were sure that this would be the day. End quote. They made their way into the depths of the cave and got back to work, noting that the breeze was present. Quote, B was making the hammer sing with each blow. And after a mere two or three minutes, he let out a cheer. He turned and revealed a handful of rock that used to be attached to the cave. He was breathing heavy, but had a big smile on his face, and so did I. And for the time, the strange noise had been forgotten, and the vision of success captured our attention. End quote. After a couple hours, they had finally made enough progress that Ted thought that he might be able to fit into the into the hole. Um, I, got, I got my arms through the entrance with minor scrapes. Next came my head. But by keeping it turned sideways, I was able to get in, and for the most part up to my shoulders. When I got to my shoulders, I could feel the rocks touching all around my shoulders and chest. It was not stopping me, but I could definitely, but I was definitely scraping many surfaces of my body. I decided to just push through, keeping in mind that it was going to have to, I was going to have to come back out eventually. The pain wasn't too bad, and I was in. Well, my upper body was anyways. At least I could get a good idea what the tomb was going to be like. like okay. It. <laughs> Here's a picture. No! <laughs> There's Ted's butt hanging out of the cave. Uh, so Ted crawled deeper into the hole with barely an inch or two around him. The start of the hole was the bigger part, and the head he could see where it grew tighter. He wasn't sure if he'd be able to squeeze it through that, but he'd try. The walls on the floor of the crawl were rough, and had he tried to brush aside some loose rocks, only to find that they weren't loose at all and were attached to the floor. It became obvious that they would need to do some more work on removing the rocks and the sharp edges on the passage floor as they were already scraping at him, and he wasn't even at the tightest part of the tunnel yet. As Ted moved deeper into the passage, he had B tied some webbing around his feet in case Ted needed to be pulled out. Another picture. <laughs> I hate this so much. That's so tiny. Oh my god. <laughs> so, quote, while lying in the darkness, a passage deep within a cave, one is in a unique position to ponder, a mountain literally resting on top of me, the entire earth lying below. One tiny movement of the earth and I would cease to exist or worse, to recognize the fear shared, shared by Floyd Collins as he lay there, trapped for days within the heart of Mother Earth, incapable of freeing himself from this earthen prison. Picture yourself in my position, lying on your stomach, your left arm is extended over your head, your right arm is at your side, having only a few inches in which to move. Your arms and hands are sore and bleeding from crawling your, and pulling yourself across the broken rocks. Your entire body is resting on the rocks. Your neck gets tired of holding your head up, so you gently rest your cheek on the rock and rest. 
Once you start again, you have to push with your toes to scoot your body forward, sliding across the rocks. After moving a few inches, you're breathing hard and have to rest. As you inhale, you can feel your back pressing against the top of the, top of the squeeze, and it takes several minutes before you recover enough to press even further. The entire time, you're lying there thinking about, how are you going to back out, and what if... Well, that's pretty much what was going through my, going what I was going through at that point in the passage. So I have a picture. Um, so this was taken on a later trip from the other side, but this gives you an idea of what the crawl is like. Oh my god! You're literally just pushing yourself with your toes. You don't have any other room for me. I nope. Mm-mm. Yeah, fucking right. <laughs> I mm-hmm. uh, kudos to the people who have the balls to do that, but I do not. Yeah, no, yeah, that's... that's a bit much. I would, um, I would get that. Wait, we found the point where Nathan would tap out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Right there. Right there. Once you're once you get inside. Yeah. Then you're like, nah, I need to come back out, yo. <laughs> yep. When I reached the point where my back was rubbing and I could feel my with my head press. My back was rubbing and I could feel with my head the passage was not getting any bigger. I knew I was not most likely not going to get through. Still, I decided to give it one more push. If I had been in this position a year ago, I would have been in a state of panic. But not today. I was pretty pumped. I took a few minutes to rest. Then I went for it. I exhaled completely all the air in my lungs. This caused my chest to collapse enough to scoot forward a few inches. Because it took so much effort to scoot, I only went a few inches before I had to stop and breathe. As I inhaled, my chest pressed hard against the rock and the back against the top. It took a little longer to get my breath back. Unbelievably, I did it again. Exhale, scoot, rest. Again, only a few inches. Repeat. I took a few minutes to enjoy the... the, I took a few minutes to, quote, enjoy this position. Pinned in the small passage. Wow, I could not believe how relaxed I was. I tried one more time to exhale. My back was rubbing too much to continue. Despite the failed effort, I was psyched. I took several long minutes to lay there, and it was fun to hear him cheer as he saw my shoes go deeper and deeper. Backing out of the entrance itself was fine until he scraped his back along the top passage, pulling his shirt over his head. Alright, let's no. go. Picture here. This is just a collection of all the pictures that kind of show the expanse that they've made on the hole. Oh, wow. Quote, I had some nice scrapes on my shoulders, but I didn't care. To me, this trip was a success. I had pushed myself beyond what I thought was possible. End quote. They knew that they had to bring some more tools, so they decided to head back for the night. The both of them were incredible. Both of them were incredibly pumped, so much so that B was able to climb back up the cliff at the entrance without any help from climbing devices. This is the first time since his accident that he'd been able to do so. Prior to their next trip, they made some preparations. One was the development of a scraping tool to help with the floor of the tomb. Ted had a neighbor weld together some steel pipes, and B created a scraper using iron that could screw onto the tip of the pipe. Now I've got a picture. So this is B with the scraper that they made. So April 7, 2001. It'd be seven weeks before they could make it back out to the cave, but Ted swore this was the time that they'd finally get through. When they arrived, it took about two hours of work with their new tool to scrape out enough of the floor that Ted thought he could make it. Ted was ready, and he had made duct tape suspenders to keep his shirt from moving around during the crawl, and he took a flashlight in hand. Moving through the tunnel wasn't much easier than it had been the first time, but this time he was able to keep going, and there were a few less sharp rocks digging into his chest. Quote, when I could feel my back brush in the top of the passage in several places, I reverted to my technique of uh, exhaling. Before I began, however, I took a minute to lay there in the passage. I could see the glow of B's flashlight as the rays of light managed to squeeze past my body. I could feel the cool breeze evaporate the drops of dirty sweat on my forehead. I could feel thousands of sharp edges into the surface of my skin. I felt the twinge of excitement as I realized that the goal that we'd set out to achieve weeks ago was about to be realized. This thought alone made me want to keep moving. No matter how tight the passage was, I breathed in and out rapidly for a few moments, then began. Exhale, scoot, stop to catch my breath, repeat. After just a few inches of scooting, I could raise my head off the floor of the squeeze and tell tell that the passage was beginning to open up. I relayed the information to B, and we both took a few seconds to celebrate. During the rest of the slide through the passage, B was cheering me on. Virgin passage and Neil Armstrong territory! were the phrases he kept repeating, and I was grinning ear to ear. End quote. Ted pushed through the small rock wall that they had created several trips back and yelled back that he had made it, and they were both ecstatic. B pushed Ted's gear through the hole with some rope and a scraper. Quote, The first thing he sent through was my helmet and light, and after I got the light fired up, I was able to see the section, the new section of the cave. Our cave. It was, exciting, it was an exciting experience to see the results of hours of hard work over the course of several weeks. At this point, I we still had no idea what the cave had to offer. The only thing I could see was the passage immediately following the squeeze. It was an narrow passage with a low ceiling. I could, I would easily be able to get through, but it would have to crawl. 
But again, I take pictures so that I could show B. And up a picture. So yeah, it's the other side of the uh, the crawl. Wow. I asked B how far I should go into into the cave, and he, in light of the strange events that occurred for the first time, he too toned down his enthusiasm as he remembered the noises. He slid the pipe through the tomb with a loosened tip and on the end, and he said that I could use it as a weapon if I ran into an animal or dot dot dot. He also told me to make sure that we could hear each other as I progressed in the cave, even though. We were at least thinking of the possibility of running into trouble. We never really considered the fact that if I got into trouble, B would never be able to rescue me. And in fact, no one would be able to get to me for many hours. If I were in serious trouble as in, as in hurt, there was no way anyone would be able to get to me in time. But symbolic of the whole experience, we were focused on our goal and not the potential dangers that we faced. With all his gear equipped, Ted proceeded down the new passage, which went about another 20 feet before turning right. And then this section was about 40 feet long, and more importantly, Ted could stand up to full height. The walls were pristine, untouched by man. He came across delicate rock formations and small crystals, and it didn't take long before he and B could barely hear each other, at which point Ted said that he'd go on for about half an hour and then return. B told him to be careful. Quote, the passages, the passages continued on for another 100 feet or so before the cave opened up a little. It was, it was at the end of a short, straight segment of the cave. At the very end of the segment... There's a bend and opened up into a room. Just the point where the room began, there was a round rock that appeared to be leaning against the wall. This seemed odd, but singular formations are common in caves, so it was by no means unique. I crawled and stepped over several large chunks of rocks that fell down from the ceiling, but this one was way more round than the others. Once past the rock, the room opened up to about a height of 15 feet, and it was about 15 feet wide and 30 feet in length. At the end of the room, there was another passage leading straight out. As I entered the room, I had an eerie feeling. It was like the old saying that you felt like something was like you were being watched. Once again, the excitement of the new find faded, and the memories of the mysterious side of the cave crept back into my mind. Suddenly, I felt very alone. Fortunately for my ego, I was nearly out of time and had to get back to B before my half hour was up. I took several pictures of the room, and I was going to I was I was going to just get a feel for how long the next passage was when something caught my attention. On the left side of the room, on the wall at about eye level, I discovered what appeared to be hieroglyphs. It was a single drawing that almost appeared to be part of the rock coloration. It looked very crude, represent it looked like very crude representations of people standing below a symbol. I was pumped. This meant that there had to be another entrance to the cave. Even if the entrance was closed or blocked, it might be an opportunity to open it so the bee could get in too. I took another look at the drawing to make sure I could describe it to bee, and then I took some more pictures and headed back to bee. End quote. Back at the crawl, Ted couldn't talk fast enough to tell bee everything that had happened. And he sent his gear back through. He then was faced with his journey back through the squeeze, this time going the other direction. He began to slowly make his way through, learning the, the new different ways that he had to twist his body to move forward. Quote, I was a little over halfway through when something bizarre happened. I was laying there taking a brief break when I heard the sound deep within the cave. It was faint, the distinct sound of rock sliding on rock. My blood froze in my, my veins. I couldn't move. I just lay there, straining to hear the sound again. Nothing. I quickly began to scoot toward the exit. I didn't mention the sound to B, but I did recall one of our early trips when B said he'd heard the same thing. Getting out of the hole turned out to be as painful as I thought it would be. I had to put my arms overhead and force my shoulders through the hole. I definitely left some skin behind as I slipped through. B helped me wiggle my upper body out of ashes, and then I could catch myself easily and lower myself to the ground. I was out. B and I shook hands and began to load up our gear. I was trying to listen to any sounds again coming from the hole, but we were making too much noise gathering our stuff. As much as I look forward to getting into that passage, it was a relief to get back out. That is pretty much how I feel about most caves in general. I love to go in, but I feel good when I get out again. Something strange happened when I with the pictures that I took in the new part of the cave. The pictures I took in the passage leading up to the room all turned out fine. Strangely, none of the pictures taken in the room turned out. Pictures of the round rock, and more importantly, the pictures of the hieroglyphs I saw didn't work out. Pictures taken before and after the room turned out great, but the negatives of the photos taken in the room were clear. Nothing. I remember what the hieroglyphs looked like, so I drew a picture. I'd like to give you an idea of what I saw. Are we being punked? That is the question. Oh, oh no! I was, I was like, okay, it's dudes dudes in a cave. Dudes in a cave. Oh, there's hieroglyphs. What? What the fuck? That's weird. That's kind of interesting. And this is a uh, picture looking into the room, and he's outlined where the round rock is. Okay. April 14, 2001. 
Only a couple days elapsed before B found someone who would be willing to explore the passage with us. B told me he talked to a few of the other people who couldn't make it because of scheduling conflicts. He said that they'd all grilled him for information about the cave and about the passage, but he would not tell him which cave it was to ensure that we were the ones who got to explore it first. Mm-hmm. Even the guy who ended up going with us did not know which cave until we were very close to it, and he was sworn to secrecy that he would not reveal the location of the cave to anyone on the planet. I won't identify him by name, so we're going to call him Joe. So they brought Joe into the cave, guiding him through the passages until they finally stood before Floyd's tomb. Joe was impressed. Joe is relatively thin and has a lot of experiences in, in caves, and said that this would probably be the tightest squeeze he'd ever been in. But it didn't bother him. Ted sent Joe through first, since he was ready, and Ted would follow after. The plan was for them to return within two hours, or else B would go get help. Quote, I was perhaps, ir- it was irresponsible perhaps that we did not tell Joe about all the unexplained events that occurred in the cave until after he'd gone through. But what exactly do you tell someone? How many of the weird things did we need to reveal to him? We didn't, we didn't feel like we were in danger or we would not have gone to the cave ourselves. So we didn't tell him a thing prior to him entering Floyd's tomb. Of course, when we did tell him afterwards, it was too late. Once I got through, B started to relay my stuff to me. Then disaster struck. I had just got my helmet, ironically, and light, and were turning around to feel the rope, feed the rope back through to B when I smacked my head on top of the passage. Human skull versus solid rock. Rock one. I told B what happened, and he sent through my first aid kit. I was bleeding, but even worse, I didn't feel too good. So I patched myself up and then told Joe that I didn't think I could continue. He looked like a little kid who was told that Christmas would be canceled. Although I didn't like the idea of him exploring the cave without me, for selfish reasons, of course, I wanted him to at least see part of the cave for making the trip out there. I told him how far to go and how long it would take, and then I sent him on his way. As I laid there, I could hear him crawling into the darkness. His light disappeared after the first turn, and I rested for a minute or two, then began my journey back out to the squeeze. It was disappointing to get all the way to the cave and then not be able to explore it to its end. Actually, it was killing me. After I got through Floyd's tomb, which was painful, I sat down and munched on a cliff bar while B and I chatted. I told him I would pay for a motel room if, we'd stay the, if he'd stay the night, and then we could see how we were able to do the next day and make another attempt for the cave. I felt goofy for smacking my head on the cave wall. B said he was willing to give it another try tomorrow. He was just as anxious to put some closure to this cave as I was. As long as Joe was good to stay the night, we determined that we'd wrap things up the next day. Once this was settled, we just sat back and enjoyed the darkness. We could hear no sounds from the passage. The silence reminded me of the scraping noise I had heard the last time we were there. I brought up the subject with B. Since Since I had not explored the cave completely, I could not offer any explanation of what could have been causing the noise or the strange or the change in the wind strength, or the rumbling, or that terrible scream that they'd heard. Suddenly, we both wished that we had not sent Joe into the cavern alone. B went to the hole and yelled into it, Joe, no answer. No, not surprising, you just can't hear each other when you're very far apart in a cave. We we nervously awaited for any sounds, good sounds, that is, Joe-type sounds. The 20-minute time limit we had set had passed, and then 25 minutes. I really had no desire to climb back through the squeeze. My head was throbbing, and the squeeze looked tighter than ever. I still knew I was going to have to make sure that Joe was safe. Just as I was getting prepared to go back through, I saw a light deep in the passage. Joe? I called out. Nothing. Joe? Still no answer. The light got brighter, and I could hear the noise of someone crawling across the broken rock that lined the cave. You okay, Joe? No, was his weak reply. When he got to the other side of the tomb, he said that he was not feeling well. He quickly took his gear off and put them into the bag so that we could pull it through. And as I pulled the bag through the passage, he began to climb back through the tomb. We didn't even get a chance to question him about it, about what he saw before he came back, when he came through. He quickly slipped through the squeeze and the hole and finally got, we finally got a good look at him. And he looked terrible. His face was pale and he was out of breath. The dust that covers the floor of the, the floor of the squeeze left its mark on his face and clothes. He had numerous small cuts and scratches on the, on his face and arms, probably from the rapid exit from the passage. His eyes were wide. We only had a brief moment to look at the change that occurred to Joe before he started to head up and out of the cave without saying a word. While Joe and Beast started for the surface, I took a minute to gather the rest of our gear. Then I stopped to listen to the passage, and I heard nothing, and I felt nothing. The wind had stopped. Part of me wanted to go out of the cave as fast as possible, but another part of me wanted to immediately climb back in that passage and find out what was making this cave tick. Then was not the time, though. I still felt a little dizzy from my injury at that moment, and I noticed that B and Joe had made good time getting up the, pa- the cave passage, and I was left alone. Chills ran through my body as I scurried to catch up with them. Once we got outside the cave, I figured we would be able to find out more from Joe, but when he got, got off the final climb, he just unclipped the rope and went straight to the truck. In the light of the day, he looked even worse than in the cave. 
B and I gathered the rope and our gear and headed for the truck. Joe said that he did not want to stay overnight because he was feeling terrible, and we believed him. So we headed home. We could we could get no information from Joe. He just stared straight ahead. He was shaking like a leaf, and he said that he he was not cold. When we tried to question him, his answers were short. I asked him if he saw the hieroglyphs. No. Did you hear us yelling? No. Did you see the round rock? No. Did you see the crystals? No. He said he just went a little ways in and started to feel sick. Something was fishy about the answers. He would have had to be able to see the crystals if he'd gotten far enough into the cave that he couldn't hear us yelling. But why Why would he not elaborate? The rest of the trip passed in eerie silence. Joe didn't say much else. We gave him a brief outline of the strange events that had happened in the cave, and he didn't reply. So we were dropping him off. We asked if he wanted to go back to the cave. He shook his head and ran into the house. I tried to call him later in the day and the next day, but I only got his voicemail. Boopy. Okay. April 28th, 2001. Neither of them had been able to contact Joe since their last trip. They had heard from a friend that he hadn't been into work, and they stopped by his house once, and it looked like somebody was home, but nobody answered the door. Quote, This cave represented to us a culmination of weeks of hard work, complete with the array of emotions from fatigue to fear, anticipation to pain, from frustration to glory. To us, we were not, we were not standing on the brink of possible destruction, but rather honoring an unspoken commitment. Much like a parent of a wayward child, we were not about to abandon our child out of fear of the unknown. Like it or not, this cave had become a part of us, and now we must see this adventure to to fruition. Additionally, ver- additionally verbose, verbose explanations aside, we were being eaten alive with curiosity. Despite the overwhelming number of unexplained circumstances, we had to get back into the cave. What was making that rumbling noise? What caused the change in the wind strength? Etc. Etc. All the way down to Joe. What could have possibly happened to him? What did he see or experience? We had many lengthy discussions about, about that and what our next move would be. We kept coming to the same conclusion. We had to return in the cave. We could offer no possible scenarios that would solve the many riddles that we had within the cave. The only way we could hope to complete this puzzle would be to conquer the cave. We were going back to Mystery Cave. Two weeks after our trip with Joe, we were on our way back to the cave. To prepare for this trip, we contacted the local cave rescue group and got permission to borrow their low-voltage two-way phone. The phone consists of two tr- transceivers and a long spool of thin wire. I would then be able to unwind the wire as I went through the passage and stay in contact with B the entire time. We also thought it was a good idea to take a video camera with us in the new passage. I purchased a case that would protect the video camera from dust, as well as the sharp rocks. I was more than willing to pay the cost for the case just so that B could see the entire passage. We checked the camera and phone to make sure that they survived the trip, and we tested everything, and I gathered my gear and wanted to take in the passage. Then it was time. We looked at each other. He said nothing. And then I turned to face the passage. As I twisted my body to get into the tomb, I desperately hoped that it would be the last time that I had to contort my body to enter this claustrophobic nightmare. Ted was able to make it through the tomb with relative ease and began his journey further into its depths, stopping every once in a while to film some of his surroundings so that B could see the fruits of their labor. It was awkward looking at the camera and, r- and rolling the phone wire as they went, especially when he had to crawl, but it was worth it for him. He couldn't capture the small formations adequately on film, that level of light, but the crystal formations turned out quite nice. It was around this time that he decided to check the phone. Quote, it was comforting to hear someone's voice deep within the passage. We chatted briefly, then I unplugged the phone and prepared to continue. When I wanted to talk to B, I would just plug the phone into the special jack on the spool of wire. The power source was on B's end of the, end of the phone, so it was always turned on. The reception was clearer as a normal phone, so and I continued forward. Even though progress was slow, it was steady. Things were going pretty well until I reached the round rock. Once again, I got that strange feeling, just like last time. I looked around carefully, but saw nothing to be alarmed about. I proceeded to film the entire room. I got good shots of the round rock from all angles. I got the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and to the best of my ability. I even got some pretty good tape of the figure on the wall. It was difficult to make out exactly what it was in the video, but you could definitely tell that something was there. After I taped everything to satisfaction, I moved towards the end of the room to prepare to explore the new territory. Ahead, he could see the new passage about another 30 feet and took his opportunity to touch base with B again. It took a couple of long moments before B answered, but when he did, his voice came through crystal clear, even if it sounded like he'd just been woken from a nap. B told Ted to take all the time that he needed, that he was in no rush. Ted thanked him and hung up. Quote, From behind me, I heard that scraping noise. It was loud when it was close. It was coming from the large room I had just left. I wheeled around to face whatever had made the noise. And when I did, I lost my presence of mind and stood up at the same time. Crunch. My helmet crashed to the passing ceiling. My light broke, and I was buried in heavy darkness. Pain shot through my neck and down into my back. The helmet had protected my head, but my neck was nearly numb from the impact. Fear enveloped me, and my knees began to shake. I slowly and voluntarily slumped to my knees. 
I gently set the camera down as I began to see the stars from the pain in my upper back. The scraping noise lasted only a second, and now the only sound I could hear was my own panic-inspired breathing. Not only could I feel the fear thick upon my chest, but the darkness seemed to hold me in place. I felt like I was vulnerable from every direction. I wanted to run and look behind me, or into the side of me and into the front of me. Everywhere I looked, I just saw black. Finally, I broke the stupor of terror long enough to reach for an alternate light source, the mini mag on my helmet. I twisted the light to turn it on, and when I did, I nearly cried. I'd forgotten to put fresh batteries in it, and now I could barely see more than a few feet. Still, it was better than nothing. I immediately began shining the light with all my might into the dark room. I strained to get a glimpse of any movement in the room, but nothing. I was shaking violently as I sat there, trying to figure out what to do. My mind was not thinking clearly. I honestly thought I was going to die right there in the cave. For a fleeting moment, I wondered how B would ever figure out what had happened to me. And then it hit me like a boulder. The phone! My mind must have been clearing up at that point because I also thought about my glow sticks. Without taking my eyes off the large room, I felt around in my pack for the glow sticks. I found one and ripped it out of the package. I could tell something was wrong by how it sounded. It had been inadvertently broken and was now useless. I checked up the ground and searched for my, my pack for another one. I took my eyes off the room only to check the passage behind me occasionally. I found another glow stick and broke it to light it up. The soft green glow created eerie colors in the walls in the cave. The stick provides just barely enough light for me to see the immediate area and provided no hint of what lie ahead. I felt the pack for one more light and again without taking my eyes off the room and I felt the third glow stick and ripped it open out of the package. After breaking it to make sure it worked, I hesitated and I threw the glow stick into the large room. The throw was a perfect one and the stick sailed through the length of the room. In the brief moment that the light traveled through the room, I saw nothing but cave walls. The absence of anything unusual did little, did little to ease my state of panic. At the far end of the room, I could get a brief glimpse of a round rock as the light bounced past it. And the light behind, went behind the rock and seemed to disappear. I was still shaking, but at least I didn't see anything. Still, there was that noise. I used the glow stick to light the phone reel, and with fumbling fingers, I managed to plug my phone into the jack. I put the phone to my ear and heard nothing. The usual beeps of to indicate connection with the other phone were not there. Terrified, I pulled the phone from the jack and reinserted again. Silence. The line was dead. What could have happened? I just talked to B. I found myself nearly sobbing with fear. I knew the only way out of here was the back the way that I came, but something was there. A third attempt to make making contact with B with the same results, I tried to think of another plan, but I could only focus on the memories of the grinding sound that I'd heard. In my weakened state, I slumped against the side of the passage, breathing like I had just finished a race, never breaking eye, eye contact with the shadows of the large room. As my shoulder touched the wall, I had a powerful jolt of pain remind me of my collision with the roof of the cave. Despair, agony, terror. I can't say exactly how long I sat there. My feet were beginning to tingle my nose, and my knees were sore. The pain in my back crept lower, although my neck felt no different. I resolved to make an attempt to exit this passage. I knew if I waited too long, I would lose the little light that I had. I attempted to stand, but did not have the strength, so I crawled slowly towards the end of the room, dragging my pack beside me. Using the walls of the cave, I was able to slowly stand, though not straight due to my sore back. Still breathing rapidly, I slowly advanced to the room. I wound up the phone wire as I went. My eyes were staring straight ahead, straining for any signs of movement. With every step, my light would cast ever-changing shadows on the wall, keeping me busy trying to look at every one. My eyes burned as I realized I had not blinked for how many minutes. Who knows? How long had this been going on? The only sounds I could hear were the crunch of my feet on the broken rock and the wheezing of my breath. As I wound the cord, I could hear the squeak of the wheel, and with each turn bringing me closer to the tomb, closer to B, and closer to safety. The short trip through the room took an eternity. As I passed the crude drawing, it seemed to glow, as if offering some sort of warning. I didn't know what the drawing represented, but everything about this cave seemed to instill fear. Towards the far end of the room, I could see the round rock dimly, as far as, the light, as, far as my light would reach. Sometimes, something seemed different about it, but I couldn't tell what, and when I got within a few feet, I could finally tell what had changed. It had moved. That was the sound that I heard. Again, terror gripped my entire body as I realized how close I was to something. I had no choice but to continue. Still, it was not easy. I inched towards the rock, holding the glow stick ahead of me in my shaking hand, using it to pierce the darkness. I stopped just this side of the rock and wound up the slack in the phone wire. And then I realized why I had lost contact with B. The rock was now sitting on the wire. I gave it a tug, and the thin wire snapped. My only hope of contact with the outside world ceased when that wire broke. I had never felt so alone and helpless. 
buried deep within the earth, I had voluntarily descended into my own grave with a casket of solid rock. With the phone now useless, I set it down in the passage. My gaze fixed on the round rock, and I proceeded forward. My breathing was rapid, with my throat dry and aching, and my mouth dusty. With every crunch of rock below my feet, my heart seemed to stop. No movement could be seen in the green glow of my stick. I got to the rock and peered over the top, seeing nothing. I took several rapid steps past it. What I realized was on the other side, I, I recoiled in horror. In the side of the passage near the floor was a hole. The, uh, another passage had been revealed. It had been covered by the rock, but now it was exposed. The rock could not have moved by itself. I backed away from the hole and collided with the opposite wall. I had not been paying attention to the pain in my back, but now it came back to me in all its fury. I stared down the newly discovered passage and went down at a 45-degree angle and continued straight for as far as I could see. Several feet down, I could see my glow stick that I had thrown. It illuminated the passage enough that I could tell that the walls were fairly smooth, and the floor seemed to be the same way, unlike the rest of the cave. The passage was about three feet in diameter, and as far as I could see, I would be easily, easily be able to explore it if I had any desire to do so. Right now, I wanted to get out of the cave and into daylight. I slowly backed away from the hole toward B. I never took my eyes off of the abyss. I nearly tripped over the phone wire as I turned to leave this devil's lair. I, I noticed my mini mag was practically dead, leaving me only with the glow stick. I wanted to sprint to Floyd's tomb. Just hearing another human's voice would help alleviate some of the fear that I was experiencing. As I turned away from the large rock of the hole, I felt an overwhelming sense of panic fill my soul. I felt like a legion of demons was about to attack from behind my back. I felt like my salvation lie ahead of me in the darkness, and Lucifer was behind me, trying to keep me from safety. I found myself moving much faster than I should have been through the cave. My only thought was to get out as quickly as possible. I passed the crystal formations, barely even noticing the beautiful creation of nature and the green glow of my light. Every time I ducked to avoid a rock, I felt my back scream a reminder of its injury. When I got to the point of the passage where I had crawl, I flung myself down on all fours, barely slowing down as I dropped. Forcing myself to move, I winced as I pulled my body onto all fours and started to proceed through the cave. I reached the point where I knew that I could yell to be, but I didn't make a sound. I didn't want to stop long enough to talk. Finally, I reached the last stretch of the cave before the squeeze. As I, was as I was crawling towards the beginning of the tomb, I called to B. He answered back. I screamed to him to get everything ready to go. He asked if I was okay, and I told him no, and to get everything ready to go. And when I reached the rope, I flipped off my helmet and shoved it into my pack, and for the first time I realized I had forgot the video camera. It was a fleeting thought. I cared no more about the camera than a passenger of the Titanic cared about a hat or a coat. I tied, to the pack of the, I tied the pack to the rope and told him to pull it through. Then I told him to start heading for the surface as soon as he pulled the rope through. He asked why, and I screamed that there was something in the cave with us. My back ached, and with every move I made, I knew it didn't matter, though I was going to get through the tomb as fast as I could, injuries notwithstanding. Just as I started to squeeze, I felt the wind of the passage increase, and with that, the most nauseating stench I'd ever experienced. It smelled like damp, damp rotting, rancid, putrid death, and I almost started to dry heave. I pulled my shirt up over my nose and shielded me from the overpowering smell as much as I could. At this point, B smelled it too and yelled, What is that? Then he yelled at me to hurry up and get through. I told him I was coming, and then I took a deep breath, threw my shirt, and started to back, back through. B's yelling had intensified my fear and panic, as if I needed any help. I knew he could sense the urgency to get in getting out of this place. Still, as I worked my way through, I yelled at him to start up, that I would catch up with him when I got through. He said he would, and he placed my glow stick into, inside the passage and then began to climb out. Halfway through Floyd's tomb, I took a break to catch my breath. I was approaching exhaustion, my respiration rate was through the roof. The top of the passage seemed to rest my cheek, and the floor felt like broken glass on my opposite cheek. As I paused briefly to recuperate, I heard a scraping noise coming from deep within the cave. It continued for several seconds and then silence. In a panic, I began to scoot through the passage. As I reached the largest part of the tomb, I quickly slid my arms out from under my body to get into position to exit through the hole. I grabbed the rope and pulled myself with all my might. When my shoulders reached the hole they lodged and I was stuck, I dug my feet into the rocks and wriggled my way back into the passage. Then I turned my body slightly and tried again. This time I was successful, pulling my upper body through. I rolled over onto all fours and slowly rose to my feet. The smell was less intense outside of the passage. I grabbed the glow stick and used it to find my helmet. Once on top, I scrambled to catch up with B. I was impressed with the speed that he had made his ascent. I did not see or hear B until I was in a small area at the bottom of the drop. He was on a rope and climbing up as fast as he could. I could hear him moving quickly and breathing heavily, and I called out to him, and his startled reaction told me that he was just as tense as I was. He told me to get on the rope and start climbing. We both knew that this was dangerous, and not something that we would ever normally do, but this was different. 
I stood there looking up at the rope as the rope disappeared in the darkness above me. I danced around as B made his way up safely. He was out of sight, but I knew he was close. I knew the rope was a lifeline to the outside, to light, safety. Behind me was darkness, fear, and the unknown. I slid the glow stick onto the cord of my helmet and reached for my harness. And then I thought, and then I thought I would give B just a little chance to get a little more higher before I pulled on the rope that was stretched down in the cave. That would make it easier to get out once we got to the top of the drop. I chose not to wind the rope around my arm since it was sore and bleeding. So I pulled it into a pile on the floor. I had about half of it, about 50 feet when the rope hit a snag. Ugh, it was solid. There was no way I was going to crawl back in and release it. So I decided to forget the rope and get my harness and get out of the cave. I quickly threw the harness around me and started to buckle it. Before I could secure it, I heard a strange noise at my feet. My pulse began to quicken. I looked down at the rope and only discovered in horror that the rope was disappearing down into the darkness. Something was pulling the rope back into the cave. I let go of the harness and began to claw my way up with the rope. The unbuckled harness fell to the floor. Fortunately, I held on to my ascender. And at the moment, I could not think straight and began climbing out of the cave without being attached to the rope. I climbed out of out many times without us using an ascending device. But I was always attached to the rope, just in case. As fast as my battered body could haul me, I was in near panic state again, and consequently was scraping, bumping, and gouging my arms and legs. As I climbed, I screamed to B that something was pulling the rope, and it, he yelled back to hurry up. Luck was with me and that I didn't slip and fall back down into the hole. If I had, I would have bounced several times against the sides of the wall before smashing into the floor. The injuries would be fa fatal. Without the necessity of having to stop to slide the ascender of the rope, I made excellent time getting up. I could see rays of light above me coming from the entrance of the cave. They told me exactly where I was. I caught up to be on the ledge below our, our rebalay point, and I told him to keep going. It would only take him a few minutes, but every second would be torture because I had to wait for him to get up. I watched the rope that we had just climbed up, and I expected to see some creature from the deep with, within the earth climbing up to make me its lunch. The rope moved around a bit in rhythm with bees climbing, but did not appear to see any tension on it. So I stood there waiting for B, and I kept watching the rope for signs of anything bizarre. I didn't know if my heart could take any more stress. I could not have been more wired. I tried to relax a bit, make sure that I was thinking rationally, but my poor brain had reached sensory overload. As B reached the top of the climb, I got ready to climb onto the sender and put my sorry butt out of there. It was then that I noticed the rope began to tighten from below. I could feel the tension in the rope, but it was steady tension, not like something climbing up. Either way, I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. I clipped and scrambled up the rope. I hadn't noticed, but B had kept on moving towards the entrance. I got up to the last few feet in a hurry. I just unclipped and kept moving, leaving the rope behind. By the time I got into the entrance of the cave and daylight, B was almost up to where the rope was anchored. I wanted to get up, get up so badly that I started to free, free climb without clipping onto the rope. I could see that B was almost up, so I clipped on and started. I almost didn't make it. I had to start up when I nearly collapsed from exhaustion. I managed to recover enough to pull myself up the last few feet. As I climbed, I could hear the tension of the rope manifest itself by the stretching noise of the rope. I prayed that the rope would not break with me attached to it. The second that I reached the top, I unclipped the ascender. I could see B kneeling down by the tree, so I limped over to him and collapsed. For the first time since I went through Floyd's tomb, we could see each other. We just stared. I knew I looked pretty bad, but didn't know that B was in such bad shape. He had cuts and scrapes over every exposed surface of his body, and his face was pale, almost white. His mouth and eyes were wide open. He was breathing heavily, almost gasping. The shock we shared at the other person's appearance was broken when we heard the rope around the tree stretch, and the knot that B had, had tied began to tighten. I was frozen in place, overwhelmed with fright. B seemed to be transfixed to the knot, and then in one motion produced a pocket knife and began to work on the rope. It was amazing... It is amazing how a person's state of mind can alter the perception of time. I'm sure it only took four or five seconds to sever the rope from the tree, but it seemed like an hour. And when the rope was cut, the knot fell to the ground, while the end of the rope zipped across the rocks over the edge of the cliff, the speed of which caused a humming noise as it went. As soon as the rope was cut, B let out a cry. He dropped the knife and fell backwards. Watching the rope fly over the edge brought the feelings in the passage back to me. I got up and headed towards the truck, and I noticed B was still laying there, wide-eyed, staring at the point the rope had disappeared, I called them, which seemed to break his trance. We got up and hurried away from the tree, the cave, the nightmare. Neither of us said a word all the way home. Well, shit. It would be almost a month before the blog would be updated again. On May 19th, 2001, Ted would post a new entry. Quote, It has been three weeks since our last visit to the cave. I want to update everyone on my condition as my plans for the cave and the events of the past few weeks. I apologize for not returning your phone calls. I've been getting all your messages. I just haven't felt up to calling back. 
Stephen Mark, thanks for your words of encouragement on my answering machine. I know you two are sincerely concerned for me. You're awesome friends, Mark. I know you stopped by the house a few times, and I'm sorry I never felt up to answering. It really helped me just knowing that you dropped by. Sis, I can hear the worry in your voice. I'm, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. Just take care of those nieces and nephews of mine. When we left the cave, I was nearly in a state of shock, and I could not think clearly and was having a difficult time trying to understand what had happened. I didn't eat much, or nor did I get much sleep, and I was glad I had the presence of mind to write down my experience while it was still fresh in my mind. As I reread it, as I read what I reread what I wrote, I felt like I accurately portrayed what happened in the cave that day. I couldn't, I wouldn't change anything that I wrote, even though it took three days to write in. When I finished writing in my journal, I felt much better. I guess it was kind of therapeutic. Unfortunately, it didn't last. In fact, it was after that that things got really bad. Ted goes on to explain what happened since he last wrote after B dropped him off that night. They hadn't talked until the day before his entry was posted. Neither of them had tried to reach out to the other. Ted took the next several days to himself and didn't leave his house. He tried to eat but had no appetite. He was restless and nothing could take his mind off the experience. He was getting all sorts of calls from people wanting to know what had happened since reading the reading his blog. And eventually, So he eventually changed his answering machine to say that he was fine so that he wouldn't have to talk to people. A week after the trip, things got strange. He began to hear inexplicable sounds throughout the house, shuffling noises, creaking doors, the usual horror movie fanfare. But it wasn't like the sounds were distinct. It was as if he thought he heard something right when it was some when he right when he was doing something else. But when he sought to listen, he heard nothing. If it wasn't for the fact that it was happening so frequently, he would have just dismissed it, dismissed it as paranoia. Feelings of anxiety and foreboding overwhelmed him, and not long after came the hallucinations. Like the sounds, he'd just catch a glimpse from the corner of his eye, but when he looked, there was nothing there. He got to the point of sleeping with the light on, and he even bought a gun through a private sale from a paper ad. He went to the doctor. He didn't say much other than that he couldn't sleep or relax, and the doctor gave him, some, gave him a prescription. His back still hurt a little at this time, but the prescription helped with that as well. When he was using his medication, he felt great, but he also felt high and didn't want to live like that for the rest of his life. So he only used it on particularly hard days, but the hallucinations worsened, making him rely more on the medication. He began to see shapes and shadows, often moving outside the window at night. Nothing that he could identify, but something was moving. Closing the drapes and blinds did help somewhat, but he was a mess. He would sleep as long as he could out of exhaustion, and he lost a lot of weight, so he tried to eat as much as he could. He didn't watch TV, he couldn't focus, and he spent most of his time on the internet doing research on caves and cave myths. The only stories that he could find were some ca- from some cave, cave folklore was about a creature that roams caves known as a hudog. Try two weeks later after the week, two weeks after the cave was when the nightmares began. Quote, extremely lucid nightmares, no specific theme or recurring events, just plain terrifying. Sometimes I was in my house and someone was trying to get to me, only I couldn't run because I had no legs. Other times I was in a vat and someone was pouring a syrup-like liquid on me, filling the vat. I would wake up in a panic. I would stay awake until exhaustion forced me into dreamland again. A brutal routine, and it continued for several days until I reached a climax on the sixth day. Yesterday, my dreams seemed so real, I had a hard time telling if I was awake or not. I was beat, really drained of energy and spirit. I was going to the living room. I was going from the living room to my bedroom in the early evening when I looked down the hall and saw a dark figure toward the end. I thought it was a thief and began to back up slowly. It didn't move as I was backing up. The lights flickered on and off. Every muscle was tense. I stopped to stare at the figure. Just then the phone rang. It startled me so bad that I stumbled over the chair. When I got up and wheeled around to look down, down the hall, nothing was there. I grabbed my keys and left the house. I felt compelled to get in my car and drive. My pulse pounded in my temples as I got in and I started the car. I wanted to drive to the overlook point to see the city lights. I didn't know why I, I needed to go there, but I knew I had to. The closer I got, the more urgent the feeling. And when I arrived at the point, I saw something that fir- at first startled me, but then caused me to be more relaxed than I had been in a long time. Joe was there. He was out of his car, standing, looking at the lights. We looked at each other, and I could see the tired look on his face. He'd been going through the same miserable trial that I'd been experiencing. He could tell from the look on my face that we had shared the same terrible experience. Our conversation was unbelievably brief. You been back? He began, even though he knew the answer. Yes. We need to return. Tomorrow good? I asked. Yeah, noon. He got in his car and got in, and I got into mine. I hadn't even wanted to talk to him about my experience. Obviously, he didn't want to know mine. I drove over to B's house. And when he answered the door, I thought B actually looked like he was doing fine, somewhat happy. One look at me and his disposition changed. Our conversation was also succinct. I ran into Joe, and we're going back into the we're going back in tomorrow at noon. B looked dead serious. He just nodded his head. I asked him if I could spend the night at his house, and he eagerly let me in. 
I didn't notice until later, but every light in his house was also turned on. He led me to the spare room. Help yourself. Thanks. I washed up in the bathroom and took some medication and got the first decent night's sleep that I had in a long time. I woke early this morning and came home to get ready for the trip. I thought I would send out an update so no one would wonder what was going on with me. I suspect that by the time many of you read this, I'll be back home and we'll have a great story to tell. I promise that if you haven't heard from me by by now, you will very shortly. It's now 10 a.m. on Saturday the 19th. We will be leaving for the cave in two hours. There are so many things I hope to accomplish this day. So many answers I hope to find in a tiny passage hidden from view. Reflecting on the events leading up to today leaves me feeling fuzzy. Was this all a bad dream? Unfortunately, I'm wide awake, and still in a few short hours, I might face my nightmare. The thought of having another person with me in the passage does nothing to alleviate the fear I feel. I almost chuckle as I ponder a childish notion that we will have to consider who will enter the tomb first? Who will lead the way into the dark unknown? Who will decide when to turn back? Foremost among the questions in my mind is, what about the video camera that I left behind? It's supposed to be able to record in complete darkness. I left the thing running, so that might have some tape. Darker questions follow. What if the camera's gone? What if it's destroyed? Although it's difficult to put an exact name on my motivation, I think closure fits quite nicely. I need to find out a few things about this cave. The main thing, believe it or not, is to find the end of the cave. And with all the bizarre things I've witnessed these past few weeks, it would seem a bit trite to want as a primary goal to get to the end. But that is what I want, to be sure. I will be seeking out other bits of knowledge along the way. If, however, I find the end of the main passage and an end to the passage hidden by the rock, I will, I'll be happy to never return to the passage again. It would, it would seem to me that crawling headfirst into a tight space into darkness is an unnatural thing, just like crawling up the side of a cliff for recreation, or jumping out of a perfectly good airplane and floating to the ground. We do these things to satisfy our hunger for adventure, the subconscious desire to conquer our own Everest. As B is fond of saying, caving is the last opportunity for exploration for the man with modest means. True, just a short drive from just about anywhere in the country is a cave waiting to be explored. Even a cave well-known among the public can be approached by someone for the first time as an adventure, something new, something to overcome, because it's there. Many of you don't agree with my decisions to pursue this cave. I know I know this from the messages that I received, and I'm afraid that I don't have a choice. If I'm, I'm, to, if I'm ever to experience a restful slumber, I must return. If I'm ever to walk the halls of my home in peace, I must return. If I'm ever to exit the overworld and enter the subterranean world of a cave, I must return. I no longer feel like I have a choice. I must return. For my friends and family who are reading this, be at peace. I will conquer this cave, and then I will turn and update this website immediately. I'll include any photos that we take today. And if you stop by the house, I'll show you a video that I have, and I expect to be home later tonight, or tomorrow at the latest. See you all soon, with lots of love, Ted. And that's where the blog ends. We just got punked. <laughs> I, like I, I feel like I got punked. And that's it for this week. Next week, I'll take you to the depths of the internet on a hunt to find out who is Ted the Caver and where is Mystery Cave. And Nathan will tell us all about the unusual set of experiments that occurred at the mysterious commune of Ong's Hat. As always, links, sources, and pictures can be found on our website, thehumanexception.com. Do you have an idea for something you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? We can co- you can contact us in so many ways. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Human Exception. Email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com or come join us on our Discord server. You can find that link on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Seriously, I thought you did that on purpose. <laughs> no, I just hit the water bottle against it when I was taking a drink. <laughs>